92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Hi, it's Mark Wasserman. Welcome to the Skaboom Podcast, which is the audio companion to my book, Skaboom, an American ska and reggae oral history. The goal of this podcast is to talk about ska with an emphasis on American ska history and the bands, musicians, and people who have helped to create and influence a uniquely American version of ska and reggae that spans from the late 70s until today. The Skaboom Podcast features a mix of stories about the history of bands, songs, and musicians as well as interviews with the who's who of ska and reggae, and standalone audio documentaries about a variety of topics. I'm excited to announce that this is one of the very first episodes of Ska Boom to be featured on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Pantheon is a network of more than 70 music-focused shows, running the gamut from casual musical exploration, music history, production, banjo culture, and now ska and reggae. In this episode, I'm speaking with Horace Panter, bassist for the specials. Horace has been a huge inspiration to me and many others who have emulated his moving octave bass runs that were drawn from disco and funk. I've met Horace twice, once when my band Bigger Thomas opened for the special beat, and he recognized me from being interviewed for a BBC news story about American Scott in the early 90s, and then again when he was on tour with Ranking Roger. Both times he lived up to his nickname of Sir Horace Gentleman. Horace, real name Stephen Panter, was born in Croydon, South London, but raised in Kettering in the East Midlands. He was a self-described pop music nut as a child, listening avidly to the pop-oriented radio stations that were cropping up in the UK in the early 60s. Horace's first bass was a semi-acoustic Rossetti bass 8, and his first band Mobius, for which he was also the vocalist, played covers of contemporary rock bands like Cream and Free. Their claim to fame? Supporting Mott the Hoople. Horace attended Lanchester Polytechnic, now Coventry University as an art student, and that's where he met Jerry Dammers for the very first time, although the two musicians only had brief musical contact. During his time at art college, Horace joined a band that had some success in a national band competition, but it didn't lead to any label interest in the band split. He then joined Breaker, a band that was playing the UK club circuit. He has described the experience as the graveyard of light entertainment, and although it paid the bills, it was hard work and uninspiring. It was during this time that Dammers called up his former college friend, asking him to join his new project, then called the Coventry Automatics, which eventually became the Specials. After the Specials disbanded, Horace joined General Public with Dave Wakeling and Ranking Roger of the Beat, and also played in Box of Blues with Neil Davies of The Selector. He later retrained as an art teacher and spent 10 years working with children with special needs. The original lineup of the specials reformed in 2009 without Jerry Dammers, and Horace continues to play with them to the present day. In 2014, he founded the Uptown Ska Collective, a nine-piece ska orchestra, and currently plays in blues band Blues To Go, 
Outside of his music career, Horace is a successful painter and has also written his autobiography, Scod for Life. Horace cites Andy Fraser of Free, Tony Jackson of The Searchers, Aston Barrett of The Wailers, and also James Jamerson and Duck Dunn as influences on his bass playing. During his career, Horace has mainly played Fender Precision basses, which is why I play a Fender Precision, but has also used Fender Jazz, Fender Mustang, and Gibson Thunderbird instruments. Horace was kind enough to write the foreword to my book, and I'm looking forward to hearing more from him about his unique experiences in helping to popularize ska and ska-influenced music here in the U.S. through his time playing and recording with the Specials, General Public, Ranking Rogers Solo Band, and then Special Beat, a supergroup featuring members of the Specials and English Beat. Later, he rejoined a reformed version of the Specials in 2008, and that version of the band has recorded and released two albums, Encore in 2019 and Protest Songs this year. Horace Panter, welcome to the Skaboom podcast. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, it's it's great to be here, but at my age, it's great to be anywhere. That's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm honored I'm honored to have you. Um, I want to start off by talking with you about bass guitars, which seems appropriate. Okay. Um, can you tell me about how you got your first bass guitar, which I know was a red Rossetti? Can you tell me about that guitar and a bit about about like getting to know the guitar because. From what I gather from doing some of my homework, you didn't actually know how to play it for a while. Is that right? <laughs> that, that's right. Um, I, I, it was more or less, I had it for like sort of three or four years before um, I actually realized, you know, before I could could play it. And I didn't even play it very well then. Um, some kid at school had one for sale and I'd always, I had an acoustic guitar. I couldn't play that either. But um, I just liked the idea of, of the bass guitar. Um, and this kid at school um, had one, and the, the, as you say, the, the Rossetti Bass Eight, and, and it cost me six pounds. And, and the neck was um, absolutely—it was like a banana. You could put your fingers between the neck and the strings down the bottom end. Um, I had a, a full-length mirror in my bedroom, and I used to—I used to pose in front of that. And the, the bass guitar looked pretty good. It's a thing I think about music shops, you know, music stores. They don't have mirrors. I think you ought to, if you're going to spend all that money on a guitar, you know, you need to know what it looks like from a distance. Do you, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, my experience was similar to yours. I, I, I convinced my mother to buy me a bass guitar from out of the Sears catalog. So I'm going to say it wasn't more than about 30 or $40. Um, but I remember when I got it, the most important thing was putting it on and and looking at myself in the mirror. I didn't know what to do with it, but I just wanted to see physically what it looked like. So you're absolutely right. Yes, yeah. I think I wonder how many how many other players have or have started life, you know, just sort of with using a guitar as a, a fashion accessory, right? A prop. <laughs> it was definitely a, yeah, it was a yeah. prop for me for a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was when when I was growing up, I, I was in a church choir, so I knew a bit about music. You know, five lines and four spaces and sharps and flats and stuff like that, um, which I suppose helped me a little bit. Um, once somebody explained to me, you know, um, what that string meant and what that string meant, and if you put your finger there and so and so. Um, but like I say, it wasn't until I went to art college, and I must have been, and I was eighteen, nineteen, that I really started to to understand how the guitar worked. 
Right. Uh, because I think for most of us, it, it, it's a very foreign object. I mean, I didn't know anything about music. I didn't know anything about notes. And so I remember staring at mine for quite a while, just completely flummoxed by it. I mean, I wanted to play it, but I didn't know what to do. So it sounds like you had a little bit of a, a head start there from, from being in the choir, but still that doesn't necessarily teach you how to physically play the instrument, right? Exactly. I needed, you know, luckily when um, I was at college, I was in, I shared a house with a guy who, um, who played keyboards and, um, and I could, so I could go up to him and I could sort of hand it to him and say, how do you play that thing there? And, and he showed me that, you know, how octaves work and how to tune the thing. Um, and yeah, and it, and it's, it started to make sense and I really enjoyed it. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it took me a while as well, but I, and I had, I had a mentor sort of like that, uh, that was very important to me, a friend who, who, already played the instrument yeah. and sort of all he did was sort of show me where GC and D were and said, uh, you're off on your own now. Did you listen to a lot of records as a way to sort of learn how to play? Um, yes. I mean, I listened to a lot of records anyway. I was, I was obsessed with pop music and I think, you know, that was why I wanted to play a bass guitar in the first place. What song did I learn to play first? I don't know. It was probably it was probably a twelve bar, um, or it was something with a really easy riff like "Sunshine of Your Love" or something like that, or, or "Spoonful" because that's just two notes. You know what I mean? So, so it, was, it was really sort of simple stuff. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how thrilled I would be when I could figure out a, a song, whether I'm listening to something on the radio or, or playing it on a record. Like if my fingers accidentally hit the right notes, I would be like completely surprised. <laughs> That's, um, I think the first, the first band that I actually sort of seriously studied was probably Free. And there's a fantastic song that they have on their second album. It's called I'll Be Creeping. And um, the bass line just goes bump, 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 bump. And it's just one note. It's excellent. So I, I could play it and I was absolutely thrilled. There, there was a chorus which kind of struggled a, a little bit, but the verses, I was there. And that was, that, I think, so that, I think that was my way in, really. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Now they have bass tabs online, you know, so if you're a, a, a beginner or, or yeah. trying to learn, you have other people who've sort of done the work for you and the whole tab thing is is great. But But back in the day before that, you really had to figure it out. And, yeah. and I think that was, that was the struggle. And then also the triumph of when you would actually figure one out. I just remember <laughs> there was no one around to talk, to tell, but I would just be very pleased with myself. <laughs> I think with the, with the, the, the group that I was in, we were absolutely dreadful. Like, uh, I think the guitar player could play a lot better than, than the rest of us. But once we actually all played one song together and it was fantastic. It was the most amazing experience. Um, and it was, you know, because otherwise we, we we would just make a racket. But that I can remember, you know, where we were and um, and and how we played um, did, when everything worked, and it was it was fantastic. And I was like, yeah, this is um, this is what I thought it was going to be. When I, when I was growing up, there was a kid. This was in Kettering, this little town in in Northamptonshire, 
the, the, the go-to bass guy was this um, kid called Pete Minnie. He was a couple of years older than me, and he was very sort of snotty. He knew how to play, and nobody else did. And I plucked up courage once and went up to him and says, can you teach me how to play um, the bass guitar? And he sort of looked down his nose at me and sort of says, well, just a matter of putting your fingers in the right place, isn't it? And walked off. And I, I was sort of felt um, particularly humiliated. But thinking about it, he was right. That's all it is. It's just a question of putting your fingers in the right place. But it's knowing where to where to put them and, more importantly, when to put them, I suppose. Sure. Uh, you know, for me, the the lightning bolt was, was really um, learning how to play, you know, in C. And then, you know, the, where are the notes and the fingerings for that? And then sort of hope, uh, slowly you know, figuring out, uh, each, each, um, one of those, you know, C, D, G that helped a lot. Um, but, but I was for, for real beginners, you know, the whole, um, flat and sharp thing can get uh, a a little confusing. It still does Mark. It still does. When people go, you know, um, Nikolai from our band will go, that's a, that's a G sharp. No, no, he'll say that's an A flat. Now I don't do A flat. I do G sharp, but I don't do A flat. And it, it, I find it very confusing. My son, who I always introduce as the musician of the family, he, he does. Um, he studied at university and everything. I, I need to sit down and talk to him about that. <laughs> um, one more question about basses. Um, you know, I watched this video of you uh, where you sh- you talked about the two different Fender bass guitars that you have played in the specials, and, and there might be more, but you were showing two of them. Yeah. And um, what is it about Fender bass guitars that make them your go-to? Um, Donald Duck Dunn played one. I suppose a Fender Precision, it, it's like the, oh, crikey, it's like the Ford Escort. You won't know what a Ford Escort is. It's like the, the bog standard, this is what everyone uses. So it's got to be the best. You know what I mean? It's sure. like It's like with amp- amplification. You go on a festival stage and you're the bass player. What do you think is going to be on stage? Go on. Guess. Uh, an Ampeg amp? Yeah, okay. Why? Yeah, because they're the best, you know, because that's what everybody uses. And it's the same with a, with a Fender Precision. It's like what's the, what's the best bass, you know, what does everybody use? The majority of people use a Fender Precision. So it's like, you know... That was it, really. I mean, yeah, it was because Donald Duck Dunn used one. James Jameson used one. Um, yeah, and um, so if, if it's good. And um, Kenny Gradney and Little Feet used one when I saw them. So, yeah, had to have one. Yeah, well, I th- it was it was really interesting to, to, to listen and watch you play each one of them and to show uh, how you, you, you know, the notes that you played on different songs that you were recorded with the specials. I think one of them was Ghost Town. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember the other one. Um, Might have been from the first album, but but they, they just sound so good. I mean, it, so I was, I, you know, I've been a Fender uh, man myself my whole life, so probably because of you. So there you go. The the chain continues. Yeah. I finally got get an endorsement deal from Fender. Here I am, an old age pensioner, and they finally... 40 years later, give me something for nothing. That's, that's quite cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, you write in your memoir, Scott for Life, that you were aware of ska and reggae, but they weren't at the forefront of your musical tastes. Sure. How and when did that change for you? Well, that was when I met Jerry and he said, um, you know, I've got these these songs and the bass goes like this, really. Um, um, we didn't start playing ska till... Probably the end of 
1978. It wasn't until Brad joined, which was, yeah, Christmas 1978, that, that we started playing ska, Mark. Um, it, before then, we, we attempted reggae, but, um, but no, it, we, we didn't really start to play ska till, you know, about a, a, a month before we recorded Gangsters, really. In doing my homework, Horace, uh, I read somewhere that I believe the first reggae band you ever saw was the Cimarron's. Is that yes, right? right? Yes, yeah. Can you tell me and other people who might be listening a bit about the Cimarron's? I mean, I know about them, but for anyone who's listening, what was it about them that stood out in your mind? Well, I, I'd never seen a live reggae band before. It's it's interesting because the support band were these um, kids from Birmingham called UB40, which was which was really strange. This was like you know, yeah. um, no, I I just never seen a reggae band before. The the uh, the bass player had a Gibson Thunderbird. You know, we go on about Fenders and everything, but he had a Gibson Thunderbird, um, and it was just. I don't remember that much about it. I just remember the, the, the big, you know, this guy running around the, the stage with a Gibson Thunderbird. But it was the first the first reggae band I'd ever seen. But they were part of the, like, like the English reggae scene along with Matumbi and, um, and all that sort of Dennis Bovell sort of stuff. Really, I, that, that, was, that was it. I think, I think, was I, I was in the specials when I saw the Cimarron's. And I suppose we were playing reggae, so I felt like an, an affinity with, with it. Um, but that, but that was it, really. It was a, it was a strange music to come to, or to because it, it didn't work like rock and roll or the blues, which was what I was used to playing. You know. Um, sure. Yeah, I, I, uh, I happened to to come across this brilliant YouTube video from 1973. Apparently, the Edinburgh Festival had a, a reggae uh, show as part of it. Um, and the Cimarron's were sort of the backing band right. for everyone. So I got the sense like, okay, these guys absolutely know what they're doing and, um, you know, stand on their own, but also were, were good enough to back all these different performers from Jamaica. So that's, you know, something for people to know. And, and if you're interested to look them up. Um, can you explain to American listeners what art school in the UK was like in the 70s? And what did you study there? I mean, were you were you artsy as you know in secondary school? I, I'm sort of interested in in what your um, decision was in terms of going to to art school in in Coventry. In um, in England, I think art school um, was either the reserve of the workshy or the the uh, the, ex- the English eccentric. Now, I I thought that I was the latter, but actually I was more like the former. Groups, groups in England came out of art school, you know, the kinks, um, the small faith, or a lot of those, you know, if you wanted to join a group, went go to art school. Worked for me. No, it would, I didn't know what the, 
hell to do when I was 17 or 18. And all these people in my, my school were going, mm, I, I think I'm going to have a career as a pharmaceutical chemist. I didn't even know what a pharmaceutical chemist was. Um, and it's like, and I like, I like the idea of being creative. I like drawing pictures and, um, and, you know, painting and stuff like that. So it's like, well, I'll, I, I, I just thought, well, what can I do? It's very short termism. You know, um, my father was, was beside himself, but he was of that generation where, you know, you left school at 16 and got a job because you had to, you know, to feed your family. It was, you know, so it was, it was, it was an extraordinary time. Um, what well, you know, when I got to art school, it was a different universe. I went to a like a foundation college, like a pre-art school thing for a year before I went to art school. And then um, it was a very prescriptive course. You did, you know, life drawing on Tuesday afternoon. You did objective research on Monday morning and graphic design on Wednesday. But I got to Coventry, to the art school, and it was basically, well, okay, get on with it. And I was like, get on with what? Um, and nobody actually said you have to actually pretend to be an artist for the next three years, have an exhibition, and then you'll get a, a degree. Um, but it took me a, a good sort of year and a half to sort of to figure that out. Um, but um, Coventry put some really good bands on, you know. So I, I kind of I, I sort of wasted it, not not all my time at art college, but an awful lot of it um, learning how to play a bass guitar. The um, the thing at Coventry was it was one of the sort of the it was a hotbed of art language, which was um, really sort of conceptual art where you went, you went to school, you went to art college wearing a suit and carrying a typewriter, um, where it was all, all about um, the, the language involved in it. And it was impenetrable. It, it's, it's kind of, it's quite interesting. It's very, that's why when people go on about the current culture wars, it's like, hey, you know, listen, I, I went to art school. I did art language. I know bullshit when I hear it, you know. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was great. Uh, and it, uh, and it, it wasn't until, I don't know, probably like 10 or 15 years later that I really appreciated what I'd done. I got a degree, but it, um, a, a degree in fine art in 1975 in England um, wasn't really worth the, the paper it was printed on unless you got a first and you could go on um, to, to do a, a post-diploma course, which was just being a student again. Um, my driving licence was was, you know, was worth more to me than than a than a, a fine art degree. To be honest, I left college and I went to work on the back door of a supermarket unloading lorries. You know, because I wanted to be in a group. Right, right. But but clearly, you learned something while you were there because I mean, you're still an artist to this day. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you must have picked something up, right? I mean, <laughs> yes, you went to yes, class. I think, it, but it wasn't, it, yes, it, you're, you're, you're right. Um, at the time, it, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't apparent what I'd picked up. It wasn't until, you know, a good couple of decades later when I, when it sort of f f slotted into place, really. Yeah. Yeah. But, 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 but I'm, I'm just, I think it's great. I mean, it's, I, I, it's not something we really have or didn't have in, in this country when I was younger, but um, I think the opportunity to spend a couple of years, maybe just figuring out what you want to do in life uh, is, is worth it. 
right? I absolutely, mean, absolutely. I mean, if I'd have left school and gone to you know to work for my my mum for my father or, or got a you know a, a, a job, you know, then it, you know the history of the world would have been different. You know, well, <laughs> very it's, true. It's musical history, anyway. <laughs> absolutely. So. While you're at art college, you meet uh, another guy named Jerry Dammers, yeah. who's a year a year below you. Yeah. What What was your initial impression of Jerry? He was um, he was the he was the English eccentric. Um, he he wore like this sort of Rupert Bear check suit and um, had these long sideburns and went around singing "I Shot the Sheriff" and stuff like that and. Um, uh, he played. I knew he played piano, um, and he made. He did the same course as me, but he um, he did uh, animation. He he his degree show was some cartoons that he'd laboriously hand painted every every frame. That was fantastic. They were really very good. Um, and then and that was it. Really, we we'd had a couple of jam sessions for want of a better word but nothing really came of it it wasn't until um he graduated which would have been uh, 1976 um that he he contacted me and said um i'm trying to put this group together and i'd like you to play in it right and i think it's just important for people listening to know that you know, I, I didn't ask you about this, but I'm going to just sort of, and you correct me if I get this wrong, but you did a stint um, in a band that played working men's clubs, right? Yeah. So you had you had spent time after you got out of school um, on the road playing music. Yes, yes. Yeah, we, 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 were, we were semi-pro. We didn't make a lot of money, and, um, but it was... It was like it was the the the, the dues paying stuff, you know, where, where you play three half hour spots, you know, and as long as long as there's something you can dance to in the in the last section, you you you're home dry, you know. Yeah, sure, sure, but f- fair enough to say you'd sort of done an apprenticeship, right? Yes, you, you did the, the long drives up and down the country and uh, not getting paid, and you know, you know, uh, yeah. the van breaking down. That, that happened with alarming regularity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or, or audiences ignoring you, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it was, it, yeah, it was like it, it was pay, paying your dues. Um, but it, it, it made me feel comfortable on stage. When I was playing at the college band, um, when I was still at college, uh, it was, was great fun. I really enjoyed it, but it was a little terrifying. Um, but I got a bit more comfortable, um, with, you know, playing um, all these uh, working men's clubs and stuff. Sure, and I'm, I'm sure that had that w- that came in handy later on when you were you know you're on the road with the specials. Um, you note that the first song you worked on with Jerry was an early version of a song called Jaywalker, which um, I went back and listened to. Um, what do you make of that now when when you hear it?
Um, it was Silverton played. Silverton Hutchinson was our, our the original uh, Coventry Automatics drummer, and he, he played on that. Uh, he, he played really good on that. Um, Jerry had a clavinet um, at the time, and it was in it was a in E flat. So all so my bass guitar was tuned down a half step. So all the every, everything else <laughs> during that set, I had to learn a semitone higher. Um, which was kind of strange. And uh, there's a really good walking bass bit or, or octave thing on, on, on it as well, which I quite liked. It was a disco tune, really. I haven't heard it for a long time, but yeah, it, 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 it was like a disco tune with this kind of weird sort of steppers beat on it. Yes, and and, and to me, uh, it it's almost sounds like proto specials. Yeah, um, before you'd all figured it out. Um, and I want to ask you about the the walking bassline and the the disco uh, quality of some of your basslines because. Um, I think you influenced a whole generation of us here in the States uh, with the eighth notes, sort of your moving eighth note um, bass lines. Did, did that come from listening to disco and funk music and then incorporating that into sort of a reggae vibe? Yes, definitely. Um, when we, you know, doing the working men's club stuff, you know, we played some discos as well, but, you know, everyone was, it was just dance music. It was funk, you know. Um, so, yeah, that was... Um, that was obviously in there in, in the mix. I never really thought that I had a particular style, you know, because I can I can show you the, the, the licks. I say on nightclub, there's a, a I, I lifted something from the average white band. I lifted something from you know Bootsy Collins. I lifted something from, but I suppose that's how you make your style. It's it's taking things from other outside influences and and putting them and putting them together. Um, yeah, I mean it, it wasn't just. I didn't just listen to Aston Family Man Barrett. You know what I mean? Right. The, you know, um, and everybody goes on about um, the specials and ska and, and reggae, but we we were as equally influenced by punk rock as well. You know, we opened for The Clash uh, in 1978, which was a, 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 a re- which was like I always say is our rock and roll boot camp. You know, it, we, it was a real learning curve to do that. Um, especially how you present a show. You know, the clash went on every time, every night and just delivered. Um, and it's like, well, if we're going to be famous and we're going to be popular, we've got to be as good as this or, or, or better. Um, so that was, a, that was a big deal. Uh, I think that whole sort of punk ethic was a, was, was a big deal. So it wasn't, just, it wasn't just ska and reggae. There was, you know, there, as you say, there's like, there was the funk thing, but there was that punk energy uh, in, in, it, in it as well. Can I go on a bit more about this? Please. Um, Please. I I don't know whether it's apocryphal or not, but when um, um, Toots Hibberts heard our version of Monkey Man, he was appalled. It's like, charm on, then play it far too fast. 
And likewise, the Scatolites, when they heard our version of um, Guns of Navarone, they were probably like, you know, I'd heard that they were like, this is dreadful, this is disgusting. They, they've just, they've lost it, you know, which I thought was really funny because we put that sort of punk energy into their music. And I remember the first time hearing, like, the Mighty Boss tones and um, Rancid or whatever, and they're playing um, um, this, you know, this new American scar far too fast. And I just thought, hey, I sound just like the Scatolites when they heard <laughs> the special, <laughs> which, which was funny. But that, 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 that's another conversation, I think. Yeah, but I, I, I do want to note that if you, for instance, to your point, if you put a song like Do the Dog side by side with Ghost Town, I, I think you'll hear what you're talking about, yeah. right? I mean, I, I think it was Do the Dog that sort of caught my attention the first time I, I listened to the specials because it's so punk rock. Yeah, that's um, a reggae bass line. go um but but it's played with that punk attitude yes yeah um and so the other thing i wanted to follow up with you on in terms of reggae bass and your style was again from your memoir you you talk about how linval um used to come over to (laughs) your apartment and essentially taught you how to play reggae bass Is, is that true yeah yeah him and desmond brown um from, who was the organ player in the in the selector? They would come round and they basically give me le- reggae lessons. Um, but it wasn't so much like this is what you play. It's like listen to it. Um, and it wasn't until I think I, I went to a blues. They, they um, I met up with Jerry and we went to some party, and um, and then you 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 heard it far too. I had never heard music that loud before. I think it or or that loud in such a small space anyway. And, and you actually felt the you felt the bass and you couldn't help but, but be moved physically by it. And I think and then I sort of understood, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. Because I, I would never, I didn't have the big, a big enough stereo to, you know, to give the, the music um, its, its proper due. Do you know what I mean? Yes, with 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 reggae, that the bass has got to be the loudest thing there, and you, you don't necessarily hear it; you just sort of feel it. And um, I, I'd never really understood that. It, I was all interested in like where you put your fingers and stuff. No, it's not that; it's the sound of of it as well, which was a, a totally new new um, uh, universe for me. Yeah, it's it's so interesting you say that. I um, I did an episode about the Stranglers uh, a couple months ago. And really dug in to to them and their origins, and it turns out that um, Jean Jacques Brunel uh, mentioned that they played a show opening up for for reggae bands, and then after the show they went to a blues dance, and it was there he said that he finally understood how to play it. Mm. So it's it's so interesting that you know the cross cultural things that were going on in England at that time, where um, you know white musicians and black musicians were coming together, but learning about each other's culture, um, particularly Jamaican music as a cultural uh, thing. 
Yeah, Don Letts was very prominent in that. Um, he was the DJ at, uh, at the Roxy Club and, and he would play reggae music in between the, the punk bands, you know, when they were sort of changing um, equipment around and stuff like that. So uh, sort of reggae, dub reggae became the sort of the, the sort of the, the soundtrack to punk gigs, if you like. And there was always that sort of thing that, that like the, the Rasta, it was like the music of um, disaffection and, and suffering and all that sort of stuff. So it, it resonated culturally, you know, what, what the Rasta was talking about. Um, as to what the punks were talking about. Yeah, there's a, a famous quote from Dave Wakeling uh, who explains where the sound of the beat came from was that they used to have parties in their flat and they would play a bunch of punk tunes in a row and everybody would go out on the dance floor and, and dance and then they would put on a couple reggae songs and everybody would sort of chill out a little bit. And he said that it was it was watching that and seeing that that gave them the idea to sort of mix the two. Mm. So again, kind of a f- fascinating the way that cu- cultures came together. Um, did, did Linval, uh, graduate you finally Horace, <laughs> after, after all these lessons? Did he, did he finally say you're, you're good to go now? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I think he did. Yeah. We, um, well, <laughs> we recorded an album together and it, which was quite successful. So I think the proof of the pudding was, you know. <laughs> um, you share a very detailed and entertaining diary of your first tour of America in 1980 in, in, in your book. Yeah. Um, looking back now, and, and it's now a little over 40 years later, is there anything that particularly stands out from that first tour? I mean, because I've read it a couple of times and I don't want to get too too into the weeds with it, but I'm, I'm interested more now from this perspective of, of, of this point in your life. What, what's your takeaway from that experience? We, oh gosh, it's really difficult because after we did it, about a couple of months after that, we came over to do Saturday Night Live. Burn rolls, nose, don't argue! We, we played gangsters. I think I think just gangsters on Saturday Night Live, and in that performance, we reached more people in America than six weeks on a bus. You know, um, and in a way, it was like, well, that was a waste of time, wasn't it? You know, why couldn't we? That's what the Beatles did, wasn't it? They they never came over and played shows. They they came over and did Ed Sullivan, didn't they? And um, in a way, it was like, well, we only, well, I think we went to America because that's what groups did back then. You know, oh, well, we've, we've, we've conquered England. Now we've got to go and conquer America. You're joking, aren't you? you know, it's, it's, um, and we were, you know, um, just so full of adrenaline and enthusiasm. It's like, yeah, we'll play anywhere, mate. But after we'd done four nights, two shows a night, at the Whiskey A Go Go in Los Angeles, we were absolutely shattered, um, and then and that was the beginning of the tour, you know. <laughs> so um, it was a real struggle. I think that 
six weeks, was it eight weeks, whatever, I think it, it, it broke us. We were not the same band when we came back from that tour as we were when we left England to go and, you know, to go and start it. Um, I, I think, it, yeah, but, I, but, but that's America, isn't it? And we didn't know how big America was. You know what I mean? Yeah. People still don't. Uh, wh- when you arrived here on that tour, was that the first time that you had been here personally? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what, what stood out initially to you about America? Um, I, I, I really like the people. I, I thought, that, and, and I, I love the fact that we, we left New York and it was freezing cold. And about four hours later, we landed in New Orleans and it was roasting hot. I thought that was, that was great. But that's the thing that I quickly learned about America is it, it's so different in, in, in the, you know, in the, the different states that, that you, that, that, that you go through. But the majority, I mean, I, I, I love America. Don't get me wrong. Um, I, I've been loads and loads of times since. And, and the people are always really friendly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we love you guys. So there you go. Um, you know, you, you mentioned you mentioned all those shows you played at the Whiskey in, in Los Angeles. And I, I just want to note this because I was just part of a panel in Los Angeles um, a couple of weeks ago about a, a small hole in the wall club called the On Club. The On Club. Yes, the On Club. And and the reason that that Howard Parr, a, 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 an expat Englishman, started the On Club was because of the specials. And, um, right. you know, I think it might have been you who, or, or someone else in the in the specials who said how how uh, surreal it was to go to the On Club, which was 6,000 miles away from, from Coventry and, and have it feel like you were back uh, at home in England. Did, did you ever get to go to the On Club or do you have any? Yes, I did. Um I, uh, oh, crikey, I think it was November 1980. Um, I visited America um, on a holiday. I, I went to um, Los Angeles, San Francisco and New York to visit people who I'd met on our, our first trip. And um, it was suggested that we go to this new club where they were playing music um, that I would be familiar with. So, yeah, um, I, I went down and I think I think the box boys were playing. <laughs> Wow, that's crazy because we just got them to, to reform and perform for the first time in 40 years uh, just a couple of weeks ago. The singer is a girl singer who ended up fronting a heavy metal band or something. Isn't that right? That's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. Uh, Betsy Weiss, who took the name Betsy Bitch, and right. her heavy metal band was called Bitch wow. and um, drew the ire of the Parents Resource Center, which was at the time headed by... Al Gore's Al wife, Gore's Kipper, Kipper Gore, Gore. Yeah, who was attempting to help to tell to help the the youth of America stay on the right path. Yeah. Um, yes. So so it is fascinating that you know from from Coventry to Los Angeles, the specials really had such a huge impact. You know, when you say you know performing on Saturday Night Live probably was worth more than touring around the U.S. for six or eight weeks. I I would say to you that um that there was you had quite an impact. I mean, the the specials hover over over every, nearly every chapter of the, of my book. Every, everyone I interviewed, there are there are nineteen chapters in my book. The specials are name checked wow. by nearly everyone who um, who I spoke with. That's so fantastic. Band's influence, band's influence um, it, it, it is undeniable. Can I tell you an anecdote? Yes, please. Um, in a 
couple of years ago, we played in um, Silicon Valley um, with the specials, and our support band was Fishbone. And um, before they went on stage, um, Norwood Fisher came up to me, sat next to me, and he looked me in the eye and he says, Horace, you don't know what you guys did back then. We were all these black guys into Devo, um, and then we went to see Dance Craze, and then we formed a band, which was fantastic, really. I mean, he didn't have to say that. And, I mean, Norwood Fisher, I mean, now there's a bass player. Um, but for him to say that was like, that kind of made that little trip for me. It was, a, it, it was amazing. But, yeah, and I, and I don't like to sort of go on about, you know, hey, I influenced a generation because I'm far too modest for that and I don't believe my own press. Um, and I like to keep my feet on the ground, but it's really nice when something like that comes along. Yeah, and and I'll I'll be I'll be the immodest one here then, and say that that there were a lot of Norwoods um, around the United States. Sure. So um, yeah. we can leave it at that. So I don't offend your your British modesty, but um, <laughs> it, it, it it was it was truly um, game changing for for, yeah. for many many right. many young musicians who, you know. That DNA from you is now, you know, in all the American bands that are still playing, you know, ska and reggae that was influenced by the specials. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's jump ahead a bit to your next American adventure, because I think this is where a lot of people my age and maybe a younger sort of were first introduced to you. But um, when I interviewed you for the book, um, I asked you some specific questions about general public. And yeah. you, you shared with me something that I thought was fascinating, which now makes sense, is you said that the plan was that Dave Wakeling and, and Ranking Roger would be the new wave Hall and Oates, yeah. <laughs> which I thought was fascinating. What, what Was that? What, was there any thinking in, that went into that uh, as general public ca- came together? Because when I listen to the All the Rage album now, it definitely sounds like it was written with um, American teens in mind is it what, what what's your take on that now uh, looking back um yeah well i pretty much the same really i mean dave and well the, the english beat did an enormous amount of legwork in america in like the early 80s they were they spent they were touring there all the time and they just built up this enormous fan base um and lots of contacts with radio stations and whatever and then when they split up um, this was like Dave and Rogers, you know, their, their, their plan. I think if they, if the beat had have stayed together, that their next album would have, would have like, they, they would have been, <laughs> they would have been as famous as the fine young cannibals were. Um, yeah. No, it, it was, it, it, you're right. It, it did have, um, dollar signs in it, um, general public. You know, it, it was there to um, capitalise on a market. You know, Dave and Roger were the pretty boys in the in the English beat, um, and they knew that. and And I think that was part of the 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 appeal of the band. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I, I don't want to be uh, what's the word? Uh, I, I don't want to sort of bad, bad mouth it because it was a great band and, and we made some really good songs. But it it, it didn't have the um, I say the the the, the the purity of the English beat or the specials or whatever, you know, it, it was definitely there with, um, with a, a career in mind. Right. And, and based on what you just said there, 
do you think that that because general public was was a little bit less pure in terms of message and sound than either the specials or the English beat, do you think that's why it had perhaps some broader appeal in the American market? Because a song like Tenderness is not a song like Ghost Town. I think that's that's sure. Okay, yeah, I, I, I get it. Yes, I'm 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 sure. I mean, it was a um, it, it was a it was an MTV hit, wasn't it? You know, it wasn't left field. It wasn't underground. We, we were aiming for the mainstream, you know, and, and we had our kind of um, the, the reggae and, and scar influences. But no, Tenderness is a is a, a pop tune, as was Never You Done That, you know, and all the most of the other tunes on that on that record. Yeah, right. But yes. w- what was so interesting, and I saw General Public several times, um, was that you would play English beat songs. Um, and, and so we'd only do the ones that Dave wrote. We wouldn't do anything. We, we, we never did mirror in the bathroom because David Steele wrote the baseline. It was ridiculous. But I think, um, so that was a conscious decision, um, on Dave and Roger's part. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, now that you say that it's true. I think it was, um, save it. For we later. did like save it for later. Right. Um, uh, oh crikey! We 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 actually did hit it once or twice. I think we, we we used to finish with end of the party, which I thought was great. I really like that. Yeah, one of, um, one of my favorite songs. Um, yeah. qu- quite a beautiful ballad. Um, yeah. But but general public was sort of short lived, right? Because I, I I think it's fair to say that the follow up album wasn't wasn't quite as good as, as it was crap. <laughs> no, it, no, it was they were. It were, they're potentially good songs, but um, they all ended up exactly the same speed. They all ended up being played by a machine because that's how um, successful records were made back in the eighties. You know, they had lin, lin drums and all this kind of stuff, and and um, and we and Dave and Roger desperately wanted to be, you know, to be up there with with Hall and Oates. You know, um, plus the fact that. Um, the first, all the rage was on IRS and IRS was then, um, distributed by A&M. Now the English beat had spent three years or rather Dave Wakeling had spent three years, um, befriending all the local, um, IRS reps, you know, the guys who did the radio stations and all that kind of stuff. But then, um, the, the contract with A&M expired and the IRS then went with MCA, um, who um, just didn't have a clue how to promote this sort of college radio band. 
And so there was very little. So the second album, which wasn't, which as you're right, it wasn't up to par, came out, but nobody promoted it. It wasn't on any radio stations or nothing. So, um, and that had an impact on ticket sales. And we, and we, we played, we still played very exciting shows in California. But um, I remember playing to half empty theatres in like Minneapolis and Milwaukee. Yeah. So yeah, that that that's why that felt a bit. Yeah, it's 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 a shame because um, I think that if the follow up had been as good or better than all the rage, that the general public might have been incredibly successful, or at least, as you noted earlier, probably would have given Fine Young Cannibals maybe a, a bit of a run. Um, yeah. Because yeah, to yeah. me, all the ingredients were, were there. Um, yes. Um, and around this time, the general public is touring. The early beginnings of American ska are starting to kick off around the U.S. And one of my favorite stories in, in uh, my book is uh, was told to me by um, members of Let's Go Bowling. But you met them when they were teenagers in a band called Kyber Rifles. The Kyber and, Rifles, yeah. Yes, at a show in Fresno, California on Halloween in 1984. Um, wow. What are your memories of them? Because they were absolutely um, obsessed with with you and the specials and and were a, they, that was a driving force for for Kyber Rifles and then later Let's Go Bowling. But what, what, what's your memories of them or your take on them? I had a Kyber Rifles T-shirt. I wore it forever. It was really cool. Uh, I, I must admit. Um no, I just remember, as I say, used to say this, these kids. I, I have more memories of Let's Go Bowling, to be honest, than I do of, of the Kyber Rifles. But I remember, um, I, I just I remember sort of the 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 the, the small beginnings of, of this American scar scene. Yeah, but it was it wasn't until Special Beat, which was like six years later, really, um, then that it, it it really started to started to happen. Yeah, and I, I want to ask you um, uh, about that. But um, Let's Go Bowling was picked by the Specials Mach Two, I believe, right? To tour to be your opener. Is That's that- right. Yeah, we did. We did some sh- some shows with them. Yeah, yeah, it was good. So they must have yeah, made an impression. Good. I would I would say right if if you picked yeah. them to yeah. Uh, what was it about their sound um, that that appealed to you guys in the Specials at that point? I can't remember, to be honest. I, I, I don't think I could whistle a, a Let's Go Bowling tune to you, Mark. <laughs> to, uh, you know, um, Fair enough. But but clearly the musicianship, I'm assuming that was going to be, be a part of it. But but I think, um, you know, the way that, that people have described Let's Go Bowling to me was that, you know, they come from a part of California that's considered sort of like Midwestern America, you know. Um, yes. So they were nice, clean cut young men who uh, who played their instruments very, very well and and played great sort of instrumental ska music. Um, I always thought that American musicians had better chops. You know, they, they could play better than, than English people, whereas sort of English people seemed to have better ideas, but perhaps couldn't, um, you know, uh, but, but whereas American musicians, they, they were all... This was the thing that I always... Um, that not didn't exactly bug me, but it was, an in, it was interesting to see how all the horn players, um, they, they would play ska... Uh, ensemble, but but they were they sounded more like Earth, Wind, and Fire than the Scatterlights. Do you know what I mean? Because I think they all came from the marching bands at school. Yes, 
whereas um, it, 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 you know, whereas the the, the the scar, the reggae thing, the music was kind of lazy and sort of a little bit behind the beat. And, and I think a lot of the American musicians didn't didn't get that. But that's cool because I didn't get it when I was learning it either. But it's just how it was interpreted. I'm not saying it's wrong, Mark. I'm just saying um, this. It was interesting. That, that that was that was my take on it, and that, and that's how the Americans have redefined it, and and and, and fair play to them. You know, it, it's not up to me to tell you know, let's go bowling that they're playing it wrong. You know, you know what I mean. No, understood, <laughs> understood. But you're right. I think um, there were a lot of pep rallies uh, where those horn players played maybe before they got into a ska band, so that the mm. they're they're a, a bit more energetic and um, a bit more used to playing uh, as. Uh, in unison, right, or or, yes. or in harmony together, you know, versus you're right. Some of the Scottalites where there's a more of an emphasis on individual style, right? I mean, a Don Drummond, yeah, I'm just feeling the music, yeah, yeah, as opposed to just reading the dots, yeah. It's um, yeah, it, it's it's a uh, a perennial problem, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's 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 great. It, it's it's what it's what happened. It's how the it's how the music has evolved. It, it has to, you know. Yeah, and and that's an interesting conversation that still goes on to this day, particularly here in the U.S. There's a lot of um, discussion about sort of what some people call traditional ska and what others call yeah. ska punk, um, yeah. you know, and and the differences between those two. And there's you know factions and camps. I think it's all good. There's a there's a flavor of ska for everybody, and as long as it continues to evolve, I agree with you. It, it, then that, then it's it's never going to disappear. Um, that's right. That's right. Now. Um, I posit that Special Beat had more to do with popularizing ska in America than perhaps any other band. And you, I will agree with you. You had a front row seat to 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 watching that um, develop. Do you have any any memories uh, of that experience? Because I think you did you did at least two tours with Special Beat, right? Yeah, I, I was in. I, yeah, I did uh, nineteen ninety 1990 and nineteen ninety one. Um, I played some, but I think that was when um, the American ska scene started to to happen. Um, the Toasters supported us on our first trip um, in 1990, and you know, um, and they'd been going for a while, um, and it was, and and that was when a lot of kids would come up to to me after the show and say, "Hey, we saw you on Saturday Night Live." You know, and they kept repeating it, um, and we, we, you know, we found out when it was repeated, and we tell all our friends, "Hey, you got to watch the Spike specials on Saturday Night Live." I think that that sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier about how important that performance was, not just in 1980, but you know, in some in subsequent years. But um, yeah, I, I think Special Beat sort of was. I think we we were aware that there was um, you know a, a new wave of, of of American ska bands, or there was a, a wave of American ska bands, and um, Special Beat was was formed primarily to capitalise on that. Um, and we played some incredibly exciting shows. I remember playing the Channel Club in Boston, um, and the whole place was absolutely heaving. It was it was, it was amazing. And there was another. We played some college out in the Midwest, and somebody took some some um, some um, footage of it, some some um, Betamax footage, and uh, sort of panned round, and the whole hall were up there dancing. It, it was it was fantastic. It was was really really good, and it was a fantastic band. It had the greatest rhythm section in the world, as me and Brad, 
Um, you had Roger and Neville, who were like the greatest front men at that time, you know, just playing, um, playing our, our socks off. It, it, it was really, really lovely. Yeah. I, my band, Bigger Thomas, opened for Special Beat along with the Toasters at the Ritz. Is it in New York? In New York City. And I know exactly what you're talking about because we were overwhelmed with we had never played in front of a crowd that big nor have we ever played in front of a crowd that 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 was that unleashed um yeah and i think to your point americans had been dying to see the specials on the english beat that that people my age and actually a bit younger had missed you and there right. this had built up there was this pent-up demand to, to see you so i think that first tour uh, I don't know what you thought from the stage, but I think you're right. I, I mean, there was just people. It was like um, welcoming a ho- home. You guys, you know, was we mm. there was such love for the specials and the English beat from my generation that that I think that tour just you know changed a lot uh, of what came next here in, in this country. And I I wrote a whole chapter in my book about actually I think a good friend of mine uh, Wayne. Um, took over for from you after you sort of I think had done your two your two tours and said I've had enough. But there was another tour, yes, Wayne Lothian, yeah, yeah, with with the Scottalites and the Toasters and the Selector that also had uh, the Scavuvi tour that also continued yeah. to build on what you had all all done. Um, yeah. Uh, before the specials were formed in two thousand and eight, Horace, you joined in with Specials Mach Two, and um, yeah. I think the Guilty Till Proved Innocent album is a really good album. Uh, I'm a fan of that whole album, but I love the track Fearful, which I think you may have helped to write. Um, And it sounds like it could have actually been on the first album, in in my opinion. But what's your take on that album now, in in hindsight? Because those are not songs that get played out, do they? No. The the, the Mark IIs is a kind of a, um, what's the word? I, we we did an album before then called Today's Specials, which I really didn't like, but um, it was a quest of like, we could actually turn professional because we've got a, um, well, we, we were all sort of part time. I was, I was a student. I was learning how to be a school teacher. Um, and, um, and I was basically broke. And, you know, here's somebody coming along and say, here, there's, there's some money to be had here. So, um so, so I did it. I don't. I don't feel great about the. You know, that's not a really. That's not a great reason to to to, to be in a group. But anyway, that's what happened. Um, but then we we went to America um, and kind of like special beat. You know, we we went down really well. Well, we would, wouldn't we? And um, and um, there was the prospect of a, a record deal. Again, with um, with Way Cool, which was a, a sort of a, a boutique label signed to MCA, so we um, we we signed that, and we we wrote some songs, and we came over to America and recorded it. I mean, the the album stiffed um, because it was never in the shops. Um, I think we got played on K Rock a couple of times or whatever, and and it was just like. There's like ever diminishing circles, really. We just couldn't get the gigs, and we would end, we ended up playing all these radio station shows where you're on with like 25 other bands and Green Day, and um, um, and you, you get getting very little money. And I was, you know, and I wasn't 25, you know, I, I was I was I was 35. Um, no, I was more like 45. And um, you know, I, I had family responsibilities, 
and that was that. But yeah, but um, yes, I'm, I'm blethering. Um, Guilty Till Proved Innocent wasn't too bad. Um, I think the best songs on the album are written by Mark Adams, the keyboard player. Um, I, I'm very proud of the song Fearful. Watch it, sacrificed it to Tim Armstrong because he wanted to um, we could get him to, to sing on one of these songs and everyone was like you're singing on my song and I'm like okay you can sing on my song yeah. <laughs> um, so and I'm glad he did I, I met Tim Armstrong I, 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 I'm proud to say that I, I consider him one of my friends a lovely man um, yeah um, very scary back then <laughs> um, but yeah it was um, it, it, it's okay it's got yeah. Some of the songs are, are written well, were written very quickly and sound like it. To be honest, mm. um, but yeah, they're, they're, there's some good stuff on there. There is, there is, and, and what I like about Fearful is it, it with Tim Armstrong on it. It it it, it sounds like American Two Tone because you have his voice, and it yeah. it sounds like you know what I think people's impressions of America sometimes are in in the worst way. You know that that crime and and you know that you can't walk safely i, I thought it captured that vibe um perfectly yeah. for the for that for that era um is it true now for, as an artist i'm asking you this as you know because i'm fascinated by this because i also follow artists is it true that shepherd fairy did the artwork for guilty till proved innocent yeah correct can you tell me yeah. a little bit about that that's crazy well he didn't act, he all he did was like he, he just put that kind of uh weathering effect um, I think he might have actually taken the photos. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, that, so, but he, he, he did the, the layout and did that sort of weathering effect um, on it. Yeah, no, I... I, I but this I, was before he was... I mean, he, he was known around California, you know, about Obey and all that kind of stuff, but he hadn't sort of become the, um, the worldwide phenomena that he is today. Right. He, he, he was, he had a little bit longer to go, but I, I, I noticed again, I'm doing my homework and I'm looking through the credits and I was like, wait a minute, look at that. How interesting. Um, cassette tapes have been a feature of your artwork, Horace. Yeah. What is it about cassette tapes that you find creatively inspiring? Um, <laughs> art wise, I, I, um, I like pop art. I like the idea of the elevation of the mundane. I love the idea that um, Andy Warhol 
Um, we did uh, paintings of soup cans, lots of different Campbell's soup cans. Um, here's something that's ordinary that you can see in a shop, but it's now art. And um, in and that so the soup can is to Andy Warhol, the cassette is to me. You know, do you know what I mean? Um, yes. The, the cassette is my soup can. Here is a piece of uh, uh, disposable early music technology. Um, so we're going to make it art. But there's another thing about cassettes because they they're kind of repositories of memory, if you like. Because you here's the cassette that you made when you were going out with Daphne. You remember Daphne? That was that girl, you know, in in thirteenth grade or something. You know what I mean? Um, so they they have they have history uh, attached to them. Uh, a B, if you're a musician yeah. um, and you're making a record, you'll go into a, or you did, you'd go into a recording studio and they would give you a, or you could get um, a cassette of the what you'd done that particular day. So you could go home and you could say, okay, we'll go for, tr- for take five of this song or, right, I've got to practice my guitar break uh, on this particular cassette. So they were, they were tools. They were, they weren't just uh, repositories of memory now. They were, they were, Tools and some, somewhere there is the 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 skeleton the, the, of some fantastic albums where it's just the bass and drums or it's you know the bass drums and the keyboards or something and so that that was um, where my interest in in cassettes come from yeah no I I, I love it um, and again I think I come from that generation um, who made those mixtapes. For um, you know, the a girl or a boy that yeah. they that they had a crush on, and, yeah. and you're right, you can pop that cassette tape in and immediately be transported back to a specific place in time. Yeah, the, the other nice thing about it is was you, I, I couldn't have done a Beatles cassette because they, you know, because that, they were after the Beatles, you know, and um, and I think cassettes were like from 1970 to like 1995. So I've got, again, you've, I've only got this 25 year span of, um, you know, of, um, you know of, of making them relevant, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, and, and if you don't know this, I will, I'll, I'll let you know that cassette tapes seem to be having a small renaissance. Yes. Um, and so uh, there's actually a label here in this country that only puts music out on cassette tapes. And there's now a cassette tape day to rival record store day. <laughs> um, I know that the last specials album, the, the, um, the protest songs album was, was available on cassette. They, 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 they sent me a couple to test pressings. It sounded great. Yeah. I, I, I still have a, a, a big place in my heart for, for cassette tapes and I still have, you know, these mini suitcases full of them still, which yeah. I'll, I'll never, They'll go to my grave with me, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that, that was the reason for, for, for painting them, really. Um, but I like things that are – I like to, like to do a series, diff, you know, sort of paintings that are similar but different. And cassettes are all the same size, but they're just different colours and they've got different things written on them. And, um, and I, I, they, I just think they, they, they capture a moment in time. Yeah, I love that. Um, one last question for you, Horace. Okay. Uh, you said in a recent interview, my favorite venue in the world is the Broomfield Tavern near Coventry, not the Budokan in Tokyo or whatever. Why is that? Um, I don't get nervous at the Broomfield. It's weird. I, I get nervous at every other gig that I, that, that I do, but I don't get nervous there at all. It's just a, a great vibe. 
It's um, it's a tiny little room. Um, but I don't honestly know if they're going to put bands back on again since the pandemic. The, the, the chap who owns it is a builder, and it's like it's the worst, um, you know, and, and he's, he's been doing renovations, and, of course, they never finished. So I, I don't think the, the room is, is there anymore. I, I, I like playing little gigs. I've always loved was it? I think Chrissy Hines said nobody wants to play stadiums. You know, stadiums are just there because you know you can make an enormous amount of money. I love playing little go, little gigs. Not that I don't love playing stadiums, but you know, I, I, there, there's something great about you know. Now that's what I wanted to. How I mean, that's what I loved about playing music in the first place. You could have this intimate, you know, intimate atmosphere and intimate experience with with, with people. You know, you see the whites of their eyes and all that, that stuff. It was great. My my little blues band in Coventry played. Um, it was a week last Friday. It was amazing. It was really cool in this tiny little room. And it was great. We finally finished playing at quarter to 12. You know, it was great. So good. <laughs> um, do, so do you have that experience when you're on a big stage with the specials? Do you ever lose yourself in the same way? that you do on a stage like the Broomfield Tavern. I'm, I only ask because um, I, I work with Cindy Lauper and, and she has told me um, on several occasions that for her, the sign of a good show is when she loses herself completely. It doesn't matter where she is. Are you still able to lose yourself in the music in the same way on a big stage that you are on a small stage? Yes, um, especially now because we we have these amazing musicians um, that, that that we're able to play with, um, Kenrick Rowe, Nikolai Toplas, and Steve Craddock. You know, I mean, th- those guys are just are just tremendous. So the band is 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 phenomenal. It is really good. Yes, a couple of times. Um, it, yeah, well, mo- most of the time. No, it's 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 good, but it's like it's the yin 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 and the yang, if you like. I mean, I, people say to me uh, when I go to when they talk to me at like my pub gigs, they say, you know, is it what what's it like, you know, playing little gigs when you're up there, you know, supporting the Rolling Stones or whatever? And it's like, well, it's I, one puts the other one into context, you know. I think if I just played big shows, um, I, I think I don't think I would be as good a musician as if you know if I didn't play the the, the smaller gigs. It, it's a I'm not really. I'm not making a great deal of sense here, am I? No, I understand that. I understand what yeah. you're saying. I think it's it's. Um, does the playing the smaller gig um, allow you to be more in touch with the love that you have for just playing versus the pressure of opening for the Rolling Stones or <laughs> you know playing um, the Budokan hmm. in Tokyo? <laughs> it's it's a, it's a difficult one because I don't want to sound like I don't like being in the specials. Which is, you know, which, which is, um, it's all interconnected. Because if I wasn't in the specials, I don't know if I'd be able to be, you know, afford to play all these, all these little gigs that I, that, that I do. But so it, it's all kind of interconnected. It's a different kind of ecstasy. Let, let, let's say. Yes, that's that's a perfect way to end. Um, thank you, Horace. I've really enjoyed speaking with you, and um, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Skaboom Interviews. My book is available from DeWolf Publishing at DeWolf.com as well as on Amazon. Thank you again, Horace, and to all of you for listening. Take care. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? 
not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial.